anyways, uh, hey, I'm Kotz. I'm one of the pastors here at Westlight. Welcome. And we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. And this section of Acts we're calling Power Trip. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll know exactly why. Because Paul enters into a city called Ephesus, and there's a lot of power dynamics happening. Well, today we're moving on to chapter 20. And uh, we're specifically, we're going to be looking at chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. And... Uh, this is a part where he, Paul departs from Ephesus, and he'll come back again next week. But this week, we're doing a little detour. And chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, is actually broken up into two sections. It's actually broken up to chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and 7 through 12. And the reason why this is important is because we're not going to focus so much on verses 1 through 6. But here's a quick um, summary of what happens 1 through 6. This is like a super quick version of it. 1 through 6 basically means, uh, what it says is, Paul leaves Ephesus and arrives in a place called Troas. We'll come back to these verses next week because there's, there's an important thing about these verses. But it's kind of like Paul goes on a trip and he arrives at a place called Troas. Something happens there and then he continues his trip. And the big picture really matters to us. But that thing that happens at this place called Troas is what we're going to focus on today because it seems like a very random thing. So today we're focusing on verses 7 through 12, just 7 through 12. And it's a very short story, but it's a really random story. It's a story that makes you think like, you know, Luke, did, did, you, did you put this in there for like comedic reasons or because you wanted to warn us about something? Like if you guys have been on the yearbook staff, I don't know if you're back in high school, or if you've ever put together an, a, a family album. Like our family, we put together an annual calendar with our photos in there. And we usually start off with like 100 pictures. And we have to narrow it down. We have to like throw away pictures that we're not going to use. Hey, that's a good picture, but we already used that other picture from the same place, so let's just pick one that we like better. And we have to edit ourselves, and then we put the ones that are the most important ones in these albums or in the yearbook or in the calendar, right? Well, the same goes for these biblical authors. They have all these stories of what happened, and they have to pick and choose what they're going to put in the Bible. And for Luke, who wrote this, he's, we have to wonder, as, as biblical scholars will look at these passages, they're going to be like, why did he include this story in there? It wasn't just because they felt like it. There was a purpose behind it. So today, we're going to do something really interesting. Oh, and before I move on, kind of referring back to last week, last week we had a Q&R, question and response, and it was pretty cool, right? So I should have said this in the beginning of the sermon. We're going to do this uh, again, probably at the end of the month, okay? And so if you have questions about the book of Acts, you could keep it till then. If you need an answer right away, you could pull me aside or any of the pastors aside, ask them questions. Okay, anyways, so today we're going to be looking at these verses, 7 through 12. But what's important about these verses is that we're going to be looking at it not from Western eyes. In other words, if I were to just tell you what these verses meant, you're going to read the passage for yourself and say, Kotz, are you kind of reaching there? Like, it, I don't really think that's what, like, isn't the book of Acts like a history book? You can't treat history, the literature of history like this, right? Well, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you guys, and maybe if you're a Bible nerd, then you already know this, but there's a very specific way of reading literature if you were living in the first century, especially if you're a Jew, and if you're also a Greek back then, you will also be familiar with these styles. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read through the story first, and then I'm going to walk us through how an ancient eyes would have looked at these verses. Are we cool with that? Okay, I see a thumbs up and a few people nodding their heads. So let's move on. Okay, let's go on. Here we go. This is how the story starts. On the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, 
okay? And this is one of the first instances in the Bible we see where people are gathering together on Sundays. Up until then, people gathered on Saturdays because that was the Sabbath. Now, Sundays, okay? On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, notice that he used the word we over here. So that means that Luke has joined the party, the, the, the traveling party again. So that's kind of cool. The author is part of the story now. And they're breaking bread. That is commonly known as communion. This is an act of worship. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. A very, very long sermon. But it's not really a sermon because when it says he kept on talking, the original language implies that it was more like a casual discussion. So just imagine like life group setting. Next verse. There were many lamps in the upstairs room, because it was dark, right? And where, where we were meeting. And by the way, if you're in an enclosed area, and if you have a, a lamp on, and we're not talking about electrical lamps, we're talking about olive oil, light the fire, you know, that kind of thing, the oxygen starts to get sucked up. You, you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you've been in that situation. And so what you need to do is you have to open up the windows, and the people who really need the oxygen, they sit close to the window right? And you start to get lightheaded because there isn't much oxygen in the room. Well, that's exactly what happens in the next verse. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, and Eutychus is a very common name for a slave. It's not something you would name your own kids. It's a name that you would give to your slave, okay? And when it says young man, we're talking about 8 to 12 years old. So this is a very young boy. His name is Eutychus, and by the way, the name Eutychus literally translates to good fortune or lucky, Okay, and this kid who was uh, he was sinking into deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. It's like, why did Luke include this? Is this you know? I don't know, right? But Eutychus typically represents the next generation. Okay, when he was sound asleep, this is this is a uh, uh, Eutychus. When Eutychus was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So this kid who's sitting by the window, Paul's teaching. He falls, dozes off, he falls asleep out the window, and, and by the way, when it says third story, back in, back in those days, they didn't count floors in the way that we do, okay? The bottom floor was often their business, so imagine like you have a restaurant or whatever, you're selling stuff, right? And that's the ground floor. The first floor is the floor above that where they lived. So technically, this is the fourth floor that this kid fell out of, and, you know, he fell asleep, fell out, dead. Okay, next verse. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Or a better translation of this is there's still life in him. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking, uh, talking until daylight, he left. There's no mention of like how this is a big deal. It's not like, oh, the kid's back alive. Oh, this is so cool. Like, they're like, hey, let's go back upstairs and break some bread again. And he kept on talking until daylight. And then Paul is like, okay, it's time for me to go, and he leaves. Next verse. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Like, hey, happy ending. So if I were to read this to you today, and with Western ears, we're listening to this story, you would assume that the sermon, if I were to, you know, the story that Luke included this in the, in the book of Acts, for this reason alone, Right? Basically, stay awake during church, especially when the pastor is preaching, or else you can die. And I would say amen to that. But you might have a different application, right, which is this. Pastors should keep their sermons under 30 minutes, or else people will die, right? 
is this why Luke put this story in? The, right? I mean, of all the stories he could tell, he said, I need to write this down. Well, the truth is, I mean, sure, we could use, no, I'll try to keep it under 30 minutes, I'll, you know. But the truth here is, and scholars agree, okay, that Luke, next slide, next, Luke is using a Jewish literary tool to make statements about the church. He's actually saying something, and, and this is the part that I think a lot of us have a hard time understanding. What we're about to do is we're going to be taking a metaphorical approach to this story. But that might make you think, wait a minute, does this mean that this story didn't take place? It's like, no, that's not what this is. And just imagine if you're in a situation where um, you were, I don't know, I need to come up with a good example on the spot. Uh, like you just saw something happen, but you're like, it actually happened, but it could also be symbolically referring to something that it, there's an importance to this thing that's happening in front of me. You'll understand in a second. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this verse together and explain to you how Luke is using two literary methods at the same time to teach us something about the church. And if I lost you already, I can't help you because it's about to get more complicated. Okay, so if we were to summarize the story to like three parts or maybe four, this is how we would summarize it. Number one, the church was worshipfully gathering, right? Where? Number two, in the upper room. And number three, Eutychus fell asleep. So let's look at these three things because remember, Luke is using these, these three ideas in the beginning of the story. And the way that scholars look at these verses is this, okay? When scholars look at certain words, especially like Greek or Hebrew, these are dead languages, or at least this dialect is dead. What they do is they look at other parts of the Bible to see how that author used that word. So if I were to look at the word sleep, and I'm saying, okay, well, Luke uses the word sleep here. Where else has he used the word sleep, and what does he mean by it? And then you import that definition or that connotation into the present passage. This is how scholars try to define language when it comes to languages that are dead. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at other parts of Luke's writing. And lucky for us, there's two books. There's the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And then there's the book of Acts, the, books that we're, the book we're reading right now. So let's start with the first one, which is worshipful gathering. When it comes to worshipful gathering, these are some, there's more, these are some of the examples that Luke uses. Like for example, there's a story in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus gathers three of the 12 disciples and he takes them to a place, this high area, this mountain, and he says, wait right there, you're going to see something really cool take place. And then this thing called transfiguration takes place. Jesus' clothes turns white and then, and then as he starts to glow and they're like, what's going on? And all of a sudden they see, sudden they see Moses and they see Elijah and they hear the voice of God and they're like, oh my goodness, this is crazy, right? And they're together and they're worshiping and they're praying. So that's one example of a worshipful gathering. Another example is the Last Supper. You probably know this story, right? This is the night Jesus is going to be betrayed and, and the next morning he'll be put to death. Um, they come together in an upper room and they're eating and breaking bread and Jesus is teaching them. When you eat this bread and drink this cup of wine, this is what I want you to think about. Let's pray. Let's share food together. So there's a lot of sharing and stuff happening, happening there. Another example is Gethsemane. Later that night, Jesus goes into uh, the, 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 it's like a, it's called Mount Olives, Gethsemane, that's where the garden is. And he's there and then he takes three of his disciples and he says, okay, let's pray. Let's, let's, here's a moment to teach. Here's, you know, they're coming together. And then we see Pentecost. This is in the book of Acts where the, after Jesus died and rose again, 
Jesus' disciples, they go to this upper room and they're sharing, they're breaking bread. It says they were breaking bread, they were eating and, um, let's see, they were praying, they were spending time at the, the, the apostles' teachings, right? Um, Tabitha is a woman who dies in, this, in the book of Acts. And they said that people were praying, they took her body to the upstairs room and then, and then uh, Peter entered and prayed for her and all of a sudden she came back to life. Right? Like, so when we look at all these examples of a worshipful gathering, this is what we learn. That to Luke, worshipful gatherings, which includes prayer, breaking bread, teachings, and being together unity, they are all associated with heaven on earth. When they come together, at least from Luke's perspective, right, and they're coming together, they're praying, and they're worshiping, and they're sharing, and they're loving on one another, and they're, they're, there's no exclusion, you know, like when they're coming together, he's like, there's something amazing that happens. There's people who come back to life. There are people whose prayers are answered. There's like people who don't usually not come together and get along. They're getting along. Like something amazing happens in these worshipful gatherings. So that's Luke's perspective of worshipful gatherings. So let's look at this list again. The church was, at, you know, the first thing he noticed is that, hey, in this story, there's worshipful gatherings. The second thing, it took place in an upper room. So what does Luke think of upper rooms? Well, here's a list of verses where Luke talks about an upper room, right, or upper area. Transfiguration. If you recognize this, these, these, this list, it's, it's supposed to trigger something in your head. But okay, transfiguration. P- Jesus takes his three guys up to the hill, and something amazing happens. The Last Supper. Luke tells us that he, you know, he didn't have to write this, but he says, hey, guess what? Luke says that Jesus commanded his, his, his disciples to go to an upper room to have this meal. Um, Gethsemane. Gethsemane takes place on the Mount of Olives. It's on top of a hill. Um, Pentecost. They said that happened in an upper room. Tabitha, like I said, when Tabitha died, they, Peter said, take the body to an upper room and we'll pray over her. All these stories take place in an upper room. And why is this so important? This is because in the Jewish mind, they believe that the perfect place which was the Garden of Eden, was on a hill. And if you didn't know that, this, you know, this, is, this might be new information for you guys. But if you read the story of Genesis 1 and 2, you'll discover that the Garden of Eden is actually on a hill. It's on top of a high place. So this is why a lot of times in the Bible, we see stories like Moses going on a hill to meet with God. They believe that heaven on earth, was, you know, they were closer to God if they were on a hill. That's not necessarily true, but symbolically, that's what they believed, okay? So, if you were to read this verse again, right? Oh, the elevation settings are reminders of the Garden of Eden. This is an indication of heaven on earth. So, if you were to read the first two verses of the Eutychus story, keeping this in mind, let's read it again. On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, that's when they worship and gather, they came together, unity, they were breaking bread, and Paul spoke to the people, that's teachings, and because he intended to leave the next day, they kept on talking until midnight. <clears throat> next verse. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Luke is purposefully including these little bits of information to spark images in your head, feelings in your heart. Oh, wait, they're coming together and they're worshiping? That's heaven on earth. Oh, they're in an upper room? Oh, this is very special. So the summary of the first two verses of what we just read right there is that the church is experiencing heaven on earth. This is what Luke is trying to say with these two sentences. Are you guys following? Is this difficult? (laughs) This, I know this is rare. This is not common for the way that we read like stories like this. But 
from our perspective, we look at the story and say, oh, yeah, 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 so I get it. Um, the, the church was gathering in an upstairs room and Paul's teaching. Cool. But to the people in the first century who are reading this, who are familiar with Luke's writings, they'll read this and say, wait a minute, they're experiencing something special. The Spirit of God is moving. They're experiencing heaven together. Whoa, right? So we miss these little subtle things because we're reading with, with 21st century eyes. So <clears throat> let's look at the list again. So we got the worshipful gathering. We got the upper room. Now let's talk about Eutychus falling asleep because that's like this, the, the main attraction of this, of this story. What does sleep mean to Luke, who wrote this story? Well, when it comes to sleep, <clears throat> we have to look at the several connotations that the word sleep has in the first century, right, and how Luke uses the word sleep. So when we look through all of Luke's writings, we discover that Luke, when he says the word sleep, he actually means sleep, like physical sleep. <clears throat> he uses the word sleep, like in Luke chapter 8, he talks about how Jesus fell asleep on a boat when there was big, big waves, right? So physical sleep. Perfect, right? Okay, the second <clears throat> connotation of the word sleep is death. <laughs> so uh, in Acts chapter 7, Luke, what, Luke wrote this too. He says that a man named Stephen was being stoned, not like stoned like drugs, but like, you know, they were taking, picking up rocks and throwing it at Stephen. And as he's being knocked down to the ground, he looks up to the heavens and he says, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And then Luke chapter 7 says, Acts chapter 7 says, he fell asleep, which means he died, okay? And then the third connotation of the word sleep is irresponsible behavior, irresponsible behavior. And this is the one we're going to look at today, um, that some, when somebody's being foolish, when somebody's not being alert, when they're supposed to be. So the question is, which of these three is it? Which, like when we read the story of Eutychus, is Eutychus like literally just falling asleep? Did he die? Well, he did die. Or is he just being irresponsible? Which one is it? Well, in the Jewish culture, it's not either or. It could be two of these, all three of them, right? As a matter of fact, here's a, a seminary professor, uh, Professor Arterbury. This is what he says. In Acts 27 through 12, which we're studying today, the reference to Eutychus' sleep most certainly refers to physical rest. It's like you could take it literally. <clears throat> but that's not the only way to look at this. At the same time, meaning it could not just be one, it could be two of those definitions. However, Luke appears to build upon common metaphorical notions of sleep as well. Well, what is that, professor? Next verse. <clears throat> In particular, Eutychus's physical sleep provides a visible characterization of his spiritual laxity and irresponsible Christian behavior. So, when it comes to sleep, how does Luke use the word sleep and awake in that form in the Bible? Well, the first time we see something that's referred to being asleep or being awake is in Luke chapter two, when, you guys probably know the Christmas story, when there's the birth of Jesus takes place. There's shepherds outside. It's nighttime, it's pitch black. You can't see anything. But the shepherds are diligent, they're staying up because they have sheep, they're looking around, and all of a sudden there's a bright light. And at night, people are usually sleeping. But these guys, Luke specifically tells us that they were lying awake. And after the angel shows up, tells the, the shepherds, like, hey, I have great news for you guys. Go to Bethlehem, go look for this house. You're going to find a baby Jesus, the Savior is born. And so they run over and they see that while the rest of the city was asleep, they saw Mary, Joseph, and the baby still awake. 
Later on in this story, in Luke chapter 2, verse 37-ish, they go to a ba- Mary and Joseph takes the baby Jesus and takes the baby to a temple to dedicate the, the baby. And there they meet this lady named Anna. And they said that Anna has been praying day and night, implying that she was awake at night, praying that one day she would lay her eyes upon the Savior. So this is an example of staying awake when you're supposed to be asleep. And right here it says that because that they were awake at a time they're supposed to be sleeping, they actually witnessed something amazing. Another example of this is, uh, is selecting disciples. Jesus is starting his ministry, and he needs to find 12 guys. Luke, of all the other biographies of Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus stayed awake all night the night before praying so that he, could, he knows exactly which 12 disciples to pick out. Again, an example of somebody who should have been sleeping but is awake because they wanted to seek out something from God. As a matter of fact, in the book of Luke, one of the big themes is that Jesus or in groups of people are always found praying right before something amazing happens, something pivotal happens. The third example is the transfiguration. Jesus takes his three disciples, goes up a hill. A big fog or a cloud covers them, and so they can't see anything. And Jesus is up on the top of the hill talking with Moses and Elijah. The disciples that he brought along, it says that they're starting to fall asleep. They're dozing off. And so they're about to miss everything. And then it says that all of a sudden they became awake, and because they became awake, they were able to see the full glory of Jesus. So again, this is an example of because they were falling asleep, they were about to miss on something big, but because they woke up, they were able to see something that nobody else in history was able to see. Next example is Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. It said that it took place at night. And the disciples were brought out, the three disciples were brought out with Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, wait right here, stay awake and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray by myself. Jesus goes over there, he starts sweating blood because he's so much, under so much stress, right? And he has a prayer, same famous prayer, you know, not your will be done, Father, but uh, not, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father, right? And then it says the angel came to him and strengthened him, and then Jesus came back and he found his disciples sleeping, like he had this holy moment and they missed out on it because they fell asleep. And Jesus scolds them for falling asleep. So when you look at all these examples in the book of Luke of how he views sleep and staying awake, you start to get an idea, right, of what, how he views the connotations as associated with sleeping and staying awake. And then we move on to his sequel, the book of Acts, and we have a few examples here. <clears throat> Next one. Peter gets thrown into prison. And it says that it would happen at night. And Peter falls asleep. But you know who's staying awake during this time? It says that the church in Jerusalem was awake at the time. And they were praying for Peter. And as they were praying and praying and praying, Peter's falling asleep. An angel shows up in front of Peter and says, wake up, Peter. You're being set free today. <laughs> right? And then Peter gets up. And he's like, wow, I didn't, okay, great. You know, so again, there's another example of a group of people who are awake. And because of their due diligence, something amazing happens. Another example is when Paul ends up in prison. A lot of people go to jail in the book of Acts, right? Paul is in prison with his friend Silas, and, he's, and Luke tells us that he stayed up all night singing hymns. And all of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and all the, the jail doors flung open, and everybody escaped, but, and, but, but they didn't really escape. They stayed around because if they escaped, then the guard, would, his life would be in danger. And yeah, and this all happened because Paul stayed awake. Now, is Luke trying to tell us that you should not sleep at night? Is he telling us that we should never go to sleep? No, that's not what he's saying. 
He's using this, this Jewish literary tool to give us an idea of every time in this story that when he's telling, if there's some kind of sleeping or some kind of waking up happening, that there's something that you should pay attention to. So what he's saying is this. <clears throat> Being awake symbolizes the alertness to pivotal God moments. Being awake symbolizes the alertness to pivotal God moments in history. This is really important. And the opposite is also true. Sleep, being asleep symbolizes missing pivotal God moments. So God is doing something amazing, but you just, you just don't see it. You're just so aloof to it. You, you have no idea what's happening. And so you fall asleep and you miss out on the whole thing. There's a holy moment happening and you're sleeping right through it. And this is how Luke uses this when he talks about sleep. This is what he's talking about. So with that in mind, let's read the next verse of the story, verse 9. Seated in the window was a young man, again, ages 8 through 12 maybe, named Eutychus, meaning lucky, who was sinking into deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Next verse. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So you're starting to get this idea that there's something holy, something good, something amazing that's happening on this third floor or third story or fourth floor, right? And Eutychus is not seeing it happen. He's just kind of like, I'm so bored, I'm going to fall asleep, right? And, and because of that, it, he falls out the window and he dies. He falls away from the light that's in the room into the dark outside and he dies. So what is the summary of verse 9? This is what verse 9 is. Eutychus is not immune to spiritual slumber. So what's going on here is heaven on earth is happening. Something amazing is happening. And by association, you think that Eutychus will be a part of that group. But Luke is telling us that that's not the case. Sometimes people can be part of a community and completely miss what the community is going through. And because Eutychus represents the next generation, the next generation is not immune to missing God's movements. This is the point of this story. Luke inserts this in there because, you know, in the bigger picture of the book of Acts, God is doing some amazing stuff through the church, right? Walls are being torn down. People are experiencing healing. People are encountering God. People are learning to love people that they never loved before. And they're like, wow, this heaven on earth thing is spreading like crazy. And in the midst of that story, there's a story about a boy named Eutychus that represents the next generation who misses out on all that and falls asleep to his death. But that's not where the story ends, right? Because it was like, that's a sad story. That's not where the story ends because there's a verse 10, and this is how verse 10 goes. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. He embraces him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And if you were to understand Acts chapter 20 the way that we just talked about, then this verse has a totally different meaning. That as the church, our role is to never give up on the next generation. We listen to them. We care for them. We embrace them. We embrace them back to life, to the way that God has set their path on. We are doing our best to bring heaven on earth, and here's this younger child, the next generation, who's bringing hell on earth. Don't give up on them. Embrace them. Care for them. Bring them back to life. And then, the next part, he went upstairs again. Paul went upstairs again, broke bread, and ate. The communion table is a table of inclusion. 
Would you like to be part of the breaking of bread, part of the broken body of Christ, the blood that brings in the new covenant, the new way of connecting with God? Paul's action right after the the resuscitation of Eutychus is, please be part of our table. You get to be a part of this community again. After talking until midnight, Paul left. He's like, I gotta move on. Then, oh wait, here. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So it's a happy ending. So what is Paul saying in this story? If we thought first it was a story about, yeah, pastors shouldn't preach too long or else will people will die, right? What Paul's trying to say here is this, that the next generation may miss joining God's movement. God is healing the world. But that doesn't mean that the next generation is going to be a part of this movement. So he's saying, church, right here, the church must continue to embrace the next generation into this community. Don't give up on the next generation. You know, at Westlight, we, right now uh, we have Kids Zone, right? People at this church are teaching our kids how to pray. Some of you have participated in teaching Sunday school. But everybody else, I don't want you to think that, oh, because we have a group of people teaching Sunday school, I don't have to do this anymore. Every interaction you have with the younger generation here matters. Remembering the names of the people that you come in contact with matters. And when I say young generation, we talked about people from 8 to 12 years old. We're not just talking about them. We're also talking about high school students, middle high students, college students, young adults. If you're older than them, then that'll be the next generation for you. Say hi to them. It's like, oh man, they look so standoffish. <laughs> Break the ice. It matters. And, and this, is, this means a lot to me because this is part of my story. My friend invited me to church when I was in the 12th grade, 11th grade, the summer between 11th and 12th grade. And the first time I sat down in church, I was really nervous. I didn't know anything. What was I supposed to, you know, what was I going to expect from, from the preacher? Like, I don't understand anything that the preacher is saying. What kind of worship song is this? I don't know what's going on. And the lady sitting behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I remember your name from last week. Your name is Kotz. And I'm like, you remembered my name. And that made a huge difference for me. There's a group of people at my old church that poured into me when I was a teenager, and that's part of the reason why I'm still here. This is part of the reason why my wife and I, we decided to get back into youth ministry. I don't know if you guys know this, but Val and I, we are uh, twice, two Sundays a year, uh, a month, a year. <laughs> two Sundays a month, we, we spend time meeting with the, the teenagers of this church because we think that it's important to pour into them. If you have a story to share with them, share your story with them. Maybe it could, it could be transformational. In the same way that my heart was captured by the love of Jesus because of the people of the church, we cannot give up on the next generation. And I think this is what Paul is saying in this story, I mean, what Luke is saying in this story through Paul's journey. He's saying, guys, just because we're spreading the love of God right now doesn't mean it's going to last until the next generation. We have to pour into the next generation and have them carry on this mantle. But in order for us to expect them to do that, we have to first love on them ourselves. Yes, we may not agree on a lot of things. Yeah, we may not agree with the way that they dress or whatever the case may be, or their views on politics or their views on technology or what they do on their free time. But we've got to love on them nonetheless because they are God's children just as much as you are. 
And I know a lot of times in this church we talk about how we need to love on the people outside the walls of this church. That we need to love on people who don't have the same political views as us, or the people who are not, don't have the same view on sexual orientation as us, or we have to love on the people who look different than us. But sometimes we have to also love on the people who are from a different generation than us. And maybe sometimes, in many cases actually, that might be the biggest barrier that we have to overcome. So church, may we become the church that loves on people, not just people who are different than us in terms of race and political views and whatever, but also love on the people who are a different generation than us. Amen? All right, let's pray.